That piece of music was courtesy of my good friend, Patty Rose, and you can find more of his music if you search for Patty online, or you can look for his Spent the Rent podcast, which is a local public affairs show based here in the Eugene Springfield area of the state of Oregon. This show is Political Dharma. Welcome. I'm Alan Zundell. And in this show, I try to bring what wisdom, if any, I've gleaned over my decades of political engagement to help us think about building a better world for ourselves and future generations. And to me, that's what the larger sense of politics is all about, how we live together in such a way as to meet all of our needs successfully and flourish as human beings, not simply about partisan sniping and who beats who in elections, but it has a larger meaning about how do we organize our lives together. So that's the kind of stuff I talk about. And today's topic is going to be a program for a new political party. In my previous episode, which was also the first episode of this new year, 2023, happy new year. <laughs> Uh, and the first program that I had produced in several months since earlier in 2022, uh, I raised the idea of creating a new political party and talked about it in a more general sense. So I invite you to go back and watch or listen to that episode. But this week, uh, the program should stand in its own for the most part. I want to talk about what a program for a new political party would look like. And I want to talk about that by presenting it in three steps or stages. The first one is to talk about, explain why I think a new political party is necessary and possible. The second step would be to talk about a general orientation or a strategic orientation towards organizing what shape a program would have compatible with that, how that would um, fold into what kind of a program you wanted to create. And then finally, what the main parts of a political program would be. And I see four essential features of such a political program. So let me start with that first step of explaining why I think a new political party is necessary and possible. It's necessary because the kind of major problems we're facing is not being adequately confronted by our existing political institutions. And let me bear down on that a little bit more to make it more clear, hopefully. Um, the, the, the fact that our major economic institutions, such as our business corporations, our banking system, and our investment institutions like the stock market, are all based on making profit their priority above every other consideration means that other social goods are being destroyed in the name of profit-seeking. To what end do you gain the whole world and lose the world in the process? Uh, so give you a few examples here. Obviously, we're suffering from climate change. Maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but it's hitting some of us very directly, breathing smoke from wildfires or farmers who are dealing with drought here and around the world or um, you know, floods and major storms, all that destroying homes, destroying lives. So it's the fossil fuel company pursuing profit at the expense of the habitability of our planet is one huge example of where profit seeking can get out of control. Another is that our financial system is looking for easy ways to make profits in, a, in an environment where productive 
capacities are uh, productive enterprises are a little more uncertain. They're doing that by speculating with their money, such as buying up real estate in the hope that the prices rise and they can make a profit. Meanwhile, raising the housing costs for all of us. And housing is one of the biggest expenses in our budgets. And if the housing cost goes up, everything else gets constrained as well. And finally, um, another way they pursue process, profits is by hurting the labor force in various ways. That is reducing wages and benefits, exporting jobs to lower wage countries, automating jobs away, in general, making the, the public less economically secure and um, causing a great deal of stress and anxiety in the process. Okay, so making the profit-seeking incentive is good in some respects. It helps to create a more efficient allocation of resources to some extent, but not necessarily so if you have all these side effects that are destroying other social goods at the same time. So it's necessary to address that. Now, do we already have parties and institutions that do that? Not adequately, I don't think. Uh, maybe one of the existing parties could evolve into something that could address this problem, but I am skeptical at this point. Let me start off by saying, if the profit-seeking motive, the priority of it is the problem, what we need to do is move beyond capitalism. So in the end, my perspective is a socialist one where we need fundamental change in how the economy is organized. And that's to some people a scary prospect because attempts to do this in the past have not always turned out well. What the alternative has been to just reform capitalism and try to harness it in and, and tether it to more social aims. The example here in the United States would be the, all the reforms of the New Deal era from the 1930s up into the 40s for a while of worker protections in law, like um, making sure businesses paid a minimum wage and had safe working conditions, consumer protections, environmental protections, so regulating business for other social concerns, the uh, transfer of wealth and income from the very wealthiest, at least in theory, that was supposed to be how it worked, to programs that could help people outside the labor market who need help, like the sick, disabled, the elderly, the unemployed in areas where there's jobs are scarce and they don't have the resources to be able to move. So to uh, make a regulatory environment and a um, transfer program, and also using the spending and purchasing and central bank in, uh, powers of a central government to try to manage the ups and downs of business cycle, right? Government budgets at a national level can have a big impact on the economy, how much they're spending, how much debt they take on, all of that. And they try to use these tools to try to manage a capitalist economy in a way that would be more beneficial to society. For a while it worked, but the main reason it worked was that the post-war era, that is post-World War II, we had unique economic circumstances in which the United States was now the dominant economic power and its main competitors previous to the war, like Germany, Japan, England, were decimated by the war, so they were no longer competitors. The United States was able to make the dollar an international currency 
to facilitate trade. We will make investments in other countries to profit both their rebuilding and our investors here or investors internationally, really. Um, so it was a kind of win-win situation for a lot of these capitalist nations as they tried to rebuild. But once they rebuilt, and this is coming to the 1970s, competition increased created pressure on the dollar so that the financial system worldwide became more unstable, leading to inflation in the United States, across the world, really. But in the United States, we had uh, record levels of inflation in the, uh, uh, in the 1970s, combined with unemployment and recessions. So it didn't seem like those old tools were managing things very well. And thus, we had a disillusionment of many voters with the old New Deal program, and the conservatives able to make the argument that it was these programs themselves that were making the economy function badly and why you were suffering from this inflation and these bouts of unemployment, uh, so that they could begin dismantling all these programs, the regulations, the transfer programs, the rest, little by little, with fight along the way. But the, the main program has been on the left to protect and defend and maybe extend, if possible, those kinds of same capitalist um, restraining regulatory frameworks and transfers and the rest. Is that possible now? Not in a internationally much more competitive environment where um, not only our, our economy is not primarily contained within particular nations, but there's more and more international corporations where their businesses are conducted all over the globe and they're not rooted in one particular nation. So it's difficult for a national government to regulate them. They can always play one country against another and finances become internationalized as well. And any country as France did in the 1980s that tries to move back in the direction of greater social welfare and more regulations, that is a more progressive social democratic manner, finds that international finance can uh, curtail those programs and cause a great deal of problems, cause the government to fall because, again, ordinary citizens are suffer, who suffer will look for um, a, a way to change things and they'll vote for the opposite party, which is usually a conservative party that wants to make things worse. Uh, but voters can't always see that. So I don't think the old program is as popular as it once was. I doubt that it will get to that point with the historic memory of the 1970s in mind and other crises that have come up since then and been blamed on government uh, meddling. Um, and also the fear that if you continue to increase this, the, the role of the economy, the government in the economy, you'll end up with a repressive state like in the Soviet Union. Um, all those things combined to make this program a little less attractive. And I also don't think it would be adequate to the situation we find ourselves in, which is a whole different economic environment, much more global economy. Okay, it's necessary to have a political movement that would point to this as the central problem, that capitalism is the problem, we need fundamental reform. That is, a socialist perspective has to be articulated along with a attractive program that's not just the same old, same old. So I don't see any institutions doing that yet, although there are signs that people are converging on a particular direction, the same one that I have been converging on over the last few decades. Uh, and that's the kind of program I'd like to present today. Now, 
So it's necessary to get a voice into the electoral process and to be able to show progress and to present an attractive program, find good candidates. If a different party can do that, great. If not, build up to the point where you can challenge the Democrats and either move them in that direction or to overtake them as the um, as a party with more mass appeal. So it's the take over the Democrats or overtake the Democrats strategy. I'll talk about other parties in another episode, like the Green Party and the Working Families Party, and tell you why I don't think they're quite uh, up to the task, but they could change. Who knows? Um, the real reason that other parties are held back and why a new party seems like a uh, closed avenue is that the electoral system itself inhibits the thriving of alternative parties and upholds that two-party system. So I think it's possible if we change electoral methods to something more like preferential voting, the one that I think is most state of art is star voting, where we've been having campaigns for in Oregon in the last decade or so. Uh, also ranked choice voting, which is showing a lot of traction, appearing in a lot of places. And reforms like having all candidates and all voters participate in a single primary, all these things create some opportunities for alternative parties to thrive if they have a good program and if they have good candidates. So the first order of business would be furthering that effort at reform of our electoral methods in order to create those openings that a party with better solutions could then pursue. So necessary and possible. Okay. General strategic orientation towards organizing. Here, because I'm presenting a socialist perspective that says we have to move beyond capitalism and not just work around a capitalist uh, framework or, or build a different framework around a fundamentally capitalist system, we have to somehow change the whole incentive structure of the economic decision making. Um, I look back at the history of socialism and I see two main traditions, one which could be called gain control of the government in order to institute more so, more socialist policy direction. And the other one is to work outside the state to build up a different type of economy and then eventually make the coercive state uh, disappear because people's needs will be met better and there won't be so much to fight about and we'll be able to live more harmoniously. I call these the Marxist tradition because Marx and Marxists were the main proponents of the statist strategy whereas anarchists were the main proponents of working outside the state strategy. And anarchists, to me, um, doesn't mean people sowing chaos and throwing bombs. What it simply means is people who believe that government is inherently dangerous and you need to uh, vastly limit it, change so that you can make decisions on a voluntary basis with mutual contact, contracting between people and do away with coercion. I don't know if that's possible uh, a full-fledged anarchist society, which is why I prefer the term libertarian socialism, but that's a topic for another day or maybe a past episode, really. Uh, so the, the Marxist strategy of trying to take control of the government, not necessarily by a revolution, but if revolutionary conditions came up, that is, if people were massively revolting, then you'd want an organization that had the widespread um, public support to enable them to take control of the revolution or to guide the revolution towards a, a good outcome, right? 
right now we have some revolutionary potential because people are very scared and worried, but we don't have an organization that can guide it in the kind of direction that I think it needs to go. Um, but more importantly, even Marx said, uh, and by the way, he wasn't part of the Russian Revolution. He died before that even happened. He focused on how it would be possible to do this democratically, and he preferred democracy, where democracy was already taking place. And there's, in his time, only a few places where that was. The U.S. was becoming more democratic, extending voting rights to common people, and England started to. But beyond that, there wasn't a lot of movement towards democracy. And really, when you don't have a democratic system, it takes revolution to make progress even toward more democratic institutions, which is what a lot of revolutions have been about, right? The American Revolution, the French Revolution, all of that. So if you gather people together in a mass political party and then you contest elections and you're able to gain some government power, the strategy then was to use state power to institute this type of these types of reforms, maybe eventually nationalize the uh, key industries and run them through publicly appointed and uh, chosen directors for more socially beneficial purposes or um, you know, to, to try to overcome the market with better planning and all that. So this direction also had its shortcomings in, in which state power became more centralized and created a danger and uh, of not only you know repression and the limitation of individual freedoms and political rights but also um in you know planning that wasn't able to to think everything through and foresee that the capitalist economy is still going to have problems that are hard to address and manage for it so um, the whole system of uh, th that whole path also seems not to have, or at least it advanced a little ways and then it gets stalled and stymied because of the problems that I talked about earlier. All right. So what I'm seeing is a course between these two, between the one of trying to gather to organize in order to gain power over government and use the government to manage the economy better and the anagers position of organizing workers at individual workplaces and then creating a network of such organizations as such uh, businesses. Uh, this is anarcho-syndicalism, anarcho where you have a network of these, and then eventually, you know, you would need less of a coercive government to maintain our political economic system as we do today. So government could be vastly downscaled. For me, it means organizing people to get more political power or affect the political system to move in the direction of decentralizing power and building up these types of alternative organizations of workers control and different types of investment institutions. So that would be the program, not so much gaining more central power to manage the overall economy. There'd be some uh, of that that goes just like today, you have people trying to foresee and predict what's going to happen, professional economists, and you'd have some um, input on that. But primarily, decisions would be spread out, pushed down, and decentralized into the hands of ordinary citizens and individual businesses and a variety of um, investment institutions that would have social goals in mind. And those things then would make the need for a more cursive state and a big military and police apparatus and all the rest less important and you could begin scaling that back and devoting resources to 
building a better world in general, you know, having all we need for all people. Okay, so the strategy then is to steer between those two courses where you're contesting for state power, but you're also, your program says that you don't want to centralize power. You want to, first of all, take away subsidies that maintain the current system because capitalist firms have a lot of financial subsidies as well as the advantage of limited liability when they incorporate, start removing those advantages and then using the government powers to foster a legal environment that would nurture worker cooperatives, um, better to call it worker controlled businesses because cooperatives means they actually own the business similar to owning. It'd be just they run it because they're human beings capable of running their own work. Money would come from a uh, public banking and credit union system. So the four pieces of the political program that I'm proposing, some of them I've already gotten into a little. First one would be continuing to democratize our electoral system and moving to electoral methods that make a fair playing field for all parties to create the opportunities to do more uh, in, in this direction of a new party. And the second one would be workers' cooperatives. Uh, I keep stumbling on that word. Worker-controlled businesses, where you are removing props beneath the for-profit corporate system and creating more of a nurturing environment for bottom-up decision-making about economics. And then that that investments would be made by a set of public banks and credit unions, which would have additional goals in mind beyond just making a profit. In fact, they wouldn't be able to pursue a profit. They'd only be making loans or buying up loans in the form of bonds, things like that, where there would be a fixed interest rate. So they couldn't expect to get more than that. They'd simply be making decisions based on relative risk and uh, the scarcity of capital would set the interest rate. And then they look at social concerns, like do we need economic development in our community? Do we need more investment in renewable energy sources? Do we need you know, to support you know, more um, services for, for, uh, to help people regain their health and maintain their health? Whatever it happens to be, that would be made more democratically because public banks that hold the money that governments collect before they pay their expenses is held somewhere rather than investing it in profit-seeking institutions, investing it in public banks that have these other considerations in mind. And uh, credit unions where anybody could join who has a common concern. And the same thing, the investment decisions would not only be protecting their capital and having a reasonable rate of interest um, on it, but also investing that money where they thought it would do the most good to build a better society, not just to sustain things, okay? So the investment institutions then would incorporate at their heart more of a socially conscious decision-making process that would downgrade profit-making from the center of everything and, and despite whatever effects it has on our, our lives otherwise. So you'd have workers' control, which means that workers would be making decisions not only on the basis of trying to earn greater income, but on their working conditions, their general condition of their lives overall, the well-being of their communities that they live in. They could bring all that into it. They didn't have to worry about investors always pressuring them for greater profits because they would be 
operating off of loans with fixed interest rates and they can incorporate that into their business plan. So you're downscaling power, decentralizing it into these worker controlled businesses that would then network with each other and the uh, investment decisions. And finally, we've got the democratization through method, uh, changing election methods. We got the um, worker controlled industries and we've got a public banking credit union system for investment decisions. Finally, you have a universal support system, which would be comprised of at least a universal basic income and universal health care. This would empower ordinary people across the board because people who are not able to work for one reason or another would have sufficient income to lead a decent life or at least have a floor under the kind of style of life they could live. People who are working would have an incentive to keep working and they would be better off because they, the basic income would be added towards their income from working and they'd have health care no matter what. And um, finally, uh, consumers would have more money to spend, which means that decisions about what business, how businesses are going to invest their money to serve market needs would be based on a more widespread consumer base rather than like luxury goods for billionaires. They want to be producing things that people actually need, like more housing or food or clothes or whatever it is that people are having trouble getting a hold of. They'd be directly addressing the things that people want to spend their money on. Ordinary people want to spend their money on. All right, so that's the four essential planks I see of a policy program. The encouraging thing to me, and the reason I am putting this forward as a a vision at this time, instead of simply combining forces with progressives to defend New Deal um, reforms and try to extend those, is that, excuse me, I just took a sip of water. I see a lot of people thinking about these things who are converging in the same direction that I have been over the years. One example of that is this journal Catalyst, which is published by the Jacobin Foundation. It's a more academically oriented journal for people of socialist uh, of a socialist perspective. And there was a new article in this latest issue that I just read in the last couple of days, Mike Beggs, The Market and Workplace in a Democratic Socialism. And he's presenting a framework that's almost exactly what I just presented to you. You have workers control and you have public banking and you have a universal basic income. Those would be all pieces of this. He lays out how it could work. And he says that this kind of um, idea has been is much worked on and is kind of ready for um, presentation. In other words, you, you could build a program around it and have some credibility as it being economically viable. He also mentioned that this started out with a book by a guy named Yaroslav Vanek, who was in Yugoslavia in the post-World War II era, Yugoslavia for a time, was exactly the kind of uh, society I'm describing, not exactly, but very close, where you had worker-managed companies and public investment decisions. And he was building an a theoretical framework based on the conventional economic assumptions to show how these could work better, where the flaws in the logic might lie and how to work better. So it happens that that same book is one that I read while browsing a graduate library in the 1980s and looking for different ideas about where the left could go um, 
as the you know the conservative movement took hold and the old New Deal coalition began falling apart. And I hit upon this idea and it's stuck with me ever since. And I've continued to read upon it and think about it and make it often the basis of the kind of uh, program that I would like to see pursued. So just a little side note there, he says, there was initial interest provoked by that book and then a lot of press uh, refutation or opposition press back from conventional economists defending the more capitalist style market system. And then a new wave occurring later towards, I guess, the 90s, um, answering those economists. And now they're able to consolidate some of those insights and present a fuller program. There's various books and articles doing that, working out the theoretical problems and the practical issues involved in a system of interlinked worker-controlled industries. I hope to be bringing people on to talk about those kind of things as well as basic income and the other stuff I've mentioned in future shows. But first, I want to build up the viewership of this show so that I have a audience base to present to people and induce them to come on and talk with me. So if you found this interesting, if you've listened to this point and want to keep following these shows as I produce them, you can uh, go to my YouTube channel and you can subscribe. If you have a YouTube account, you can sub subscribe and leave comments. Don't forget to hit the notification bell so you're informed of when a new episode comes out. If you don't have an account on YouTube, you can follow me by, um, if you're on Facebook, if you have a Facebook account. I used to have a political Dharma Facebook page, but I took it down last year because uh, it was dying because I wasn't producing new videos. And I decided, well, I was just going to do away with it. But I put up a new one. So look for Political Dharma on Facebook. Nobody's there yet, but you're invited to come and uh, subscribe to that. Again, remember to uh, check off that you want notifications of any new postings. And finally, you can reach me on Mastodon, uh, Political Dharma at Mastodon Plus, which I think is mstdn.pls. They leave out all the vowels. But you can search for me and find me because I'll be posting things there as well. And you can communicate with me there. So if you are interested in this, leave comments for me, feedback, questions, criticisms. And then I can try to address those in programs going forward. Um, and if we can build up some momentum around this, we'll see whether it, um, uh, it has a place to go, either in uh, you know changing the direction of current institutions, uh, current organizations, or in creating a new one that can find a different path forward. All right. Thanks a lot for listening and having patience with me. I think that's it for this show. And here's a little bit more from Patty Rose um, to please your ears. So goodbye. I see the chains are breaking We gained our focus, the moves we're making We'll prove to determine our self-worth As a passenger on this vehicle earth